This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, other than this horrible cold that I have, what the hell is going on? No, wait, don't tell me. I want to ask you about this. No, no, piece. no. We have something else to say first. What? What the hell is going on is we just passed one million downloads of this podcast. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you, every single one of you. We love you all. Every every downloader. <laughs> <laughs> if you had told us when we started this that a million people would listen to Danny and me rant about the world and bring in interesting people and all the rest that we would have never believed. It, Nobody so. would have ever believed it. So. You're exactly right. Okay, now can I get to my question for Yes, you, you can. Absolutely. Okay, so, enough about us. <laughs> but enough about enough about both of us. Let's talk about you. Uh, my favorite topic. <laughs> don't we know it. Um, you have a wonderful piece in the Washington Post, and it brings together uh, all of the work that we do um, at AEI in all of its dimensions. In other words, it's a very deeply researched piece. Thank you, Clara, as well, and to NRGR team, our government relations team, who really helped on this. Uh, you bring together impeccable research, principled policy recommendations, and a big audience that is listening to you, I think, on Capitol Hill and in public. You wrote this piece about how we are not spending, for the most part, the money that is going to Ukraine. Oh, my God, why are we spending all this money in Ukraine? We are spending most of that money in the United States. Explain the piece. 90% of the money, it's the best kept secret about aid to Ukraine, 90% of the military aid that we provide for Ukraine doesn't go to Ukraine. It stays here in the United States. It goes to American companies, American factories, American workers who are either producing weapons for Ukraine or are producing weapons after we give weapons from our stockpiles to the Ukrainians, we backfill and and buy new weapons for ourselves. And it's modernizing our military because we are giving them very often weapons that are decades old that have been sitting in our stockpiles for a long time. And we replace them with new, modern, advanced versions that are built in 2023 instead of, you know, 2013 or 2003. We identified, and by the way, I give a shout out to Clara, our producer, who has done amazing research on this. This, plus Noah Burke and our government relations office together, they identified 117 production lines in 31 states and 71 cities that are producing weapons for Ukraine. That is not only uh, creating jobs, you know, and with this in this country right now, everybody's concerned about manufacturing jobs. Well, it's creating manufacturing jobs across the United States, but it is also aiding our national security. And I'll give you a couple examples. We had not produced a single Stinger missile since 2005 in this country. And That's why was that? Incredible. But what, you know, what was the rationale for that? We were fighting Al-Qaeda and we were fighting ISIS and they didn't have jet fighters. So we didn't have to shoot down planes. And so we weren't producing them. And now, thanks to the Ukraine aid supplementals, we have a $465 million contract to build Stinger missiles. That's going to help us in defending Taiwan. It's going to help Taiwan. It's going to help U.S. national security. And then, by the way, uh, we are producing in St. Charles, Missouri, home of Senator Josh Hawley, a senator who is virulently against Ukraine aid. We are producing two new weapon systems for Ukraine, the Joint Direct Attack Munition Extended Range, which is basically a GPS-guided weapon that converts a dumb bomb into a smart bomb and triples its range and allows it to uh, become a precision weapon, and something called the Ground-Launched Small Diameter Bomb, which is a newly developed weapon just for Ukraine uh, that can be fired for HIMARS, and it travels 93 miles, double the range of the current ground-launched weapons. Both of those are new weapons that were created just for the Ukraine war that would not exist if it wasn't for our aid to Ukraine. Those are weapons that are going to be necessary for the United States uh, in any conflict that we might fight. So what we're doing here is we are, through our aid, we're helping the Ukrainians fight for their freedom. We're giving them a lifeline to save their country and to beat back the Russians. But we are modernizing our military. We are creating hot production lines that had gone dormant and would have stayed dormant until the bombs started dropping in Taiwan if it had not been for the fight in Ukraine. And why is it 
if I may ask an extraordinarily parochial question, that Mark Thiessen and, and Clara Cuse and Noah Burke need to do this work, and the Pentagon and the White House weren't doing it for us. So here's the fascinating thing, and this is credit to, uh, credit to Clara and to Noah. Clara and Noah created this amazing database, which has the weapon system, the factory where it's being built, the congressional district, the literally the GPS coordinates for each factory so we could identify which congressional district it was in. And they put together all this work and this data set. And we wanted to make sure because, you know, Clara, how old are you, Clara? 23 years old. And how old is <laughs> Noah? OK, so two 23 year olds at the American Enterprise Institute going through all this stuff. We sent it over. I, I thought maybe we ought to have the Defense Department double check their work just to be sure, because Clara is super smart, but we you know she's young and enthusiastic, but she but she hasn't worked in the Pentagon. We sent our data set over to the Defense Department and they looked at it and they said, Your data is better than ours. Literally not- told us that. That and they came up with their own list, uh, which had missed five states that we identified. Five states that are not on their list. And then they had 10 states that we didn't have on our list. And so we said, could you tell us what weapon systems are being built in those states? And they couldn't tell us. I got to (laughs) say. Is that right, Claire? Yeah. Yeah, She's nodding yes. (laughs) You're not giving me confidence in these boobs. It is hugely important that that we do this. It is hugely important that there are challenges to our defense industrial base, that there are challenges to people who make it, that there are... And that there's a recognition on in Congress that you know I'm not I'm not much for industrial policy. None of us are. But I mean, this is what keeps us out of war. I am very happy. Remember, we had that debate during the Obama administration. They wanted to spend money on quote unquote shovel ready projects, but the only thing they would refuse to admit was shovel ready was defense. Yeah. Right. So you know, no, we need to build a highway. Okay, build a highway. Oh no, we need to invest in solar panels. That's shovel ready. It was unbelievable. So if I'm going to have an industrial policy, I am delighted for it to be creating jobs and helping deter the next war and helping win the next war if we have to fight. Exactly right. Okay, so here's the example that really shocks me. So a relatively easy weapon to build is a 155-millimeter shell. Yep, and they're using them by the thousands and they, everywhere. They the Israelis, u- the Ukrainians, everybody. You, they're using them by the thousands. The Ukrainians are using six to 8,000 of them a day. Israel is ordering them by the tens of thousands right now. Before Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year, the U.S. was producing less than 15,000 shells a month. And so the Pentagon allocated $1.5 billion to boost that production by 500% to 100,000 shells a month. It's going to take us two years to ramp up to that level. If When we do that by 2025, we will still not match Russia's production in 2024 of the same kind of shells. Those shells are being assembled in Scranton and Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. There's a new factory in Camden, Arkansas that's building it. Uh, they're using components from cities like Kingsport and Cordova, Tennessee, Bristol, Pennsylvania, Middletown, Ohio, Coachella, California. A brand new facility is being built in Mesquite, Texas uh, to produce 20,000 shells a month. And the congressman who represents Mesquite, Lance Gooden, voted against it. Right. Um, but, you know, but that's because they don't because they neither know nor care that this is going on. You know, and, and, and what should we say to them? gee, should we outsource our weapons manufacturing and our defense industrial base to China? Is that what you think we ought to do? Because why the hell otherwise are you not supporting investing in this? And I think that your piece challenged them. But what I want to see is I want to see in the Senate and the House, I want to see the leadership stand up and go member to member to member and say, Help me understand why you didn't vote for those jobs in your district. Help me understand why you voted to shut down those factories that keep us safe in your district. When I was on the Hill, we would look at members of Congress who didn't support defense, who didn't support standing up in the Cold War, who didn't support standing up for our friends. And notwithstanding that fact, if something was made in their district, damn it, they were going to spend that money. Chris Dodd, who, as far as I was concerned, supported everything the Soviet Union ever wanted. You couldn't cut the submarine, the Sea Wolf, that was made in <laughs> Connecticut, right? Yeah. What's happened? Well, Do members is, just feel so like that's not their job? That, that that Clara did uh, in in her research is we've identified 31 senators and House members whose districts or states directly benefit from Ukraine aid who have voted against it. 
I mean, and that includes some of the most vocal people like Josh Hawley, Tommy Tuberville in Alabama, Mike Braun in Indiana, Matt Gates in Florida. Uh, he's, Bill, he's busy doing other stuff. It, yes, he is. And like J.D. Vance and and Jim Jordan in Ohio, who are Jim Jordan's district is the Lima tank plant, which Obama tried to shut down. J.D. Vance and he are against Ukraine aid. And so you would think if you if you're a UAW worker, a manufacturing worker, at a the union Lima, worker, a union worker, it's a union plant in Lima, Ohio. You would think that you're, you would expect your elected representatives not just to be supporting the aid. They should be going to the Biden administration and saying, you want a supplemental for Ukraine? It better damn well include Abrams tanks. It better include striker vehicles made in my in, in they, by, oh, good union workers in Ohio. And they're they're opposed to it. But they think they think they were elected to troll to troll losers on on Twitter. They don't think that they were elected to defend their district and support workers and help us win the next war. Hey, we should probably uh, introduce our guest. Excellent. <laughs> He's a colleague of ours, uh, General John Ferrari. He's a non-resident senior fellow here at AEI, works on defense, but he had a 32-year career in the Army. I, I don't think I can list everything that Major General Ferrari did. He was the Director of Program Analysis and Evaluation, Commanding General of White Sands Missile Range, Deputy Commander for Programs at NATO, uh, Strategic Planner for Combined Joint Task Force in Iraq. Uh, but he also worked at the U.S. Army Materiel Command, um, which is something that we're going to be talking about. And I'm going to leave out the rest of his incredibly stellar credentials. Just one thing that should be of interest to everybody as we talk about all of this. He has an MBA in finance and strategic management from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. So not only does he see this from the military warfighting standpoint, he sees this from the economic business standpoint as well. Here's our John, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. We're so excited to have you here. So talk to me about the state of our defense industrial base and how Ukraine is helping it. I mean, I, I did a piece in the Post, which would you help me with a lot? You gave me some really good ideas for. And one of the points you made in the piece that I quoted you on is that our aid to Ukraine, not only is it staying in the United States, is actually modernizing our military because we're giving the Ukrainians old equipment that's been in our stockpiles for a long time. And we're buying new stuff for the U.S. military that's more modern and even better. So we're actually we're benefiting from this aid. Yeah, that's absolutely right. But to step back about your the first part of that question, which is, you know, the state of the industrial base, it's it's not good and everybody should be worried about it. And it's really been a 40 year decline ever since the end of the Reagan buildup uh, that we've allowed it to wither away. And so uh, this aid is helping to rejuvenate it. Absolutely. John, thank you from me, too. It's really great having you here, uh, especially because we're all together in the studio, which Mark and I haven't done in ages. I think we need a, a good, you know, three, four inch headline blaring here. When we nerds say the state of the defense industrial base is really a matter of concern, most people are like, yeah, yeah, whatever, I care that my milk is $6 a half gallon. Explain to people why actually this is a sort of sky is falling in problem for deterrence and for how our enemies view us? It's a broken model because it's a monopoly monopsonist economic model, which doesn't work. It's as if the Soviet Union, after we vanquished them back in 1989, we just moved their economy to the Pentagon at the de defense <laughs> oh industrial God. base. <laughs> okay, now everybody can be scared. And, and what happened in the 90s is we wanted a peace dividend. What we then did was we consolidated, right? The Secretary of Defense called everybody together for the Last Supper and eliminated competition because we thought the Defense Department thought it could be more efficient to have no competition. So, so we just vanquished communism, and our response was to adopt it. A five-year plan. Five-year plan and all the rest of it, the common uh, turn. <laughs> and then in the 2000s, we, we adopted a contracting technique, essentially contract monopoly. So if you think about in the 80s and the 70s before that, we had three or four. The Air Force had fighter aircraft. The Navy had fighter aircraft. The Marine Corps had fighter aircraft. And you had three to four companies competing against each other. Well, we went to a joint strike fighter, and essentially we said, well, in the United States, there will only be one. Everybody else is, goes out of business and, and is dead. And then you wind up why what was supposed to be a low-cost program becomes the most expensive program in the world because uh, nobody studies economics anymore. Okay, so we've got Vladimir Lenin over at the Pentagon running things, uh, and that's that's problematic. But, I mean, I'm Joe. I'm Joe Sixpack, right? What does that mean for me? Well, today, for the Pentagon to 
essentially cover up the lack of the industrial base. They have a strategy that says we will only fight one war at a time and it will be a short war. That allows them to go over to Congress and say, everything's good, I have enough money, because it meet, we meet the requirement. Uh, why Americans should be worried is, like, the Chinese know our strategy, so do the Russians, the North Koreans, and the Iranians. And so what you see now playing out is, after the disastrous pullout of Afghanistan, the Russians took advantage of that and moved into Ukraine. While Ukraine is going on and our industrial base was change, uh, is strained, then the Iranians, through their proxy forces, are now moving in the Middle East. And so the Chinese are watching. And so the preconditions are set by us, right, for the Chinese to move sometime between now and the end of the decade and take advantage of our, of our strained system because we've assumed away the problem. Walk us through what it means that our defense industrial base is weak. What should we be able to do that we cannot do today? Where are the holes? You know, for somebody who's not a listening to this, who's not a defense geek like we are uh, and doesn't follow this stuff, what does this mean in practice? So in 2014, when uh, we were fighting ISIS in the Middle East, the United States Air Force uh, went through its entire global supply of smart weapons that was meant to fight the Chinese in several months. And it took them three years to uh, recover from that. So when you shoot a weapon today, it's a three-year recovery time. And if you're assuming a short war and you blow through your stocks in a couple of weeks, well, what happens on day two of the war? Uh, we saw the same thing happen in Ukraine. We shot through our supply of munitions pretty quickly uh, and the Ukrainians then had to go to alternative methods of fighting, uh, which has really backed them into a corner of fighting a World War I-style war of trench warfare here in the 21st century when it should be a lot more high-tech, a lot more maneuver warfare. But we don't have the ability to give them the weapons that they need. And that's just a, a you know, it's total war for the Ukrainians. But in the scope of the world, it's a regional conflict and we can't keep up. Talk to us about, explain to people what just-in-time production is, because that seems to be the method. You know, they, they, we don't build massive stockpiles of weapons that we're keeping in warehouses. We have some of that, but we are our, our defense industrial system is not built to just build giant stockpiles that we can use. We produce them as needed, essentially. Isn't that right? Yes. Well, actually, we, we, we don't do just in time. That would be good if we did that. We do three years late uh, production. <laughs> Got it. So not when you shoot, uh, when you That's shoot not a, as good marketing. It's not good marketing, right? <laughs> but when you shoot a weapon today, right, you then have to go to Congress, ask for the money. That takes about a year. You then have a year to go through the contracting. And then the weapon is produced a year later. Uh, under just-in-time, as you shot it, somebody would be producing it. But none of the conditions are in place for, for that. And just-in-time was meant to be an efficient way to cover up and to reduce costs, right? So instead of building big stockpiles, right, you would, you would build it as you need it. But it turns out that if you don't have the production capacity, there are not idle workers sitting around waiting for the Department of Defense to call and say, hey, build those munitions now. You lose the workforce, you lose the production capacity, and it turns out that, that you cannot produce when you need it if you're not producing all along. I was just at the Reagan Defense Forum this weekend, and uh, we were talking about how the United States had not produced a single Stinger missile since 2005. Incredible. Um, and, the re and I found that shocking, but because we were fighting terrorists who didn't have jet fighters. Well, China has jet fighters. And so now through the Ukraine aid, we're starting to produce Stinger missiles. But the head of the company that makes Stinger missiles was there, and he said they literally had to bring people out of retirement mm -hmm. to come back and teach the workforce how to make them. The expertise to make these things had retired, and they were brought out, and now we have it. But we lost the not just the production line, but the institutional knowledge of how to produce the weapon. Yeah. So we talked about in the 90s, the peace dividend, and we consolidated. Then in the, the 2000s, we went on this transformation bent where if it wasn't current production, then we had the insurgency. 2012 really did a number on the industrial base again because of sequestration. And, and right, we cut the procurement quantities down and let that, that all atrophy. And now we follow it in the 2020s with the current administration. They have a policy of divest to invest, right? So their policy is don't buy anything today, save your money up, invest in R&D, and then we'll buy it in the 2030s. Well, 
the production capacity is not going to exist in the 2030s, right? So that's what happened to Stingers, right? The equivalent in the 2005s was we said, well, we need to save money. If we need to, we can start it up again. But again, it, and, and you look at the Taiwan problem, right? So we saw during COVID what happens if you lose the capacity to import and get semiconductors. The entire economy grinds to a halt. And so the Chinese now have us essentially by the throat because at any time they can squeeze that uh, and threaten the Taiwan semiconductor industry, then we, you know, our economy will take a huge hit. So I think for a lot of people who listen, you know, they're like, oh my God, Danny and Mark, AEI, you know, they'll say anything to, to support Ukraine aid, you know, all they want to do is just support those people at the expense of, you know, the U.S. taxpayer. Who cares what happens to Ukraine? And, you know, we're, we're making this sort of selfishness argument, you know, actually, actually, that's, you know, not right. So can you sort of mechanically explain, and Mark's written an amazing piece about this in the Washington Post that we'll link in this as well, but can you explain how this kind of works as a forcing action that, you know, actually this is making us do something that we just wouldn't otherwise do. Well, for, for some people who say we need to be focused on China, imagine if this we had not supported Ukraine, how long would our munition supplies have lasted with China? Less so than we, a week. We, less than a week. Essentially, we'd lose because the Chinese would know I just got to last more more than a week. And then if you remember back a couple of months ago or a year about a year ago when right we had to close auto plants because we couldn't, you know, make Semi, we couldn't get semiconductors. So, so the, it, we live, the, the prosperity we have as Americans today depends upon the global commons and, and the global environment. Goods are sourced from everywhere. We, we found that out during the pandemic, both manufacturing, but even, even fuel, right? So we saw what happened with colonial pipelines when our fuel went down. So imagine oil is disrupted globally and what that does to production around the world. We reap the benefit of the global economic system. We're the wealthiest nation in the world. That comes at a price, and the price is we must keep the, the global supply lines and the global peace. And right now, that's what's fraying. And everybody knows, right, that the maligned actors, the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans, and anyone else out there knows that if it's strained, right, it's a test of wills. That's what war is. And they know they, they can per perhaps outlast us if we can't produce the weapons of war. So in my article, I talk about the Lima Tank Factory, uh, which is a UAW plant in Lima, Ohio, represented by Jim Jordan and J.D. Vance in the Senate, both of whom oppose Ukraine aid. The Obama administration wanted to shutter that plant. And uh, Rob Portman and my wife, who was his LD at the time, helped keep it open and save, save the Lima plant. And the way they saved it is foreign military sales. Because there's not enough demand in the U.S. military to keep a tank plant going all year round producing weapons. And so here we are with Ukraine where the we're, we're giving them finally Abrams tanks. Uh, but it's also, you know, the Poles are giving their old tanks to the Ukrainians and they're buying Abrams tanks from Lima. And the other, other countries are doing the same thing. What is the importance of foreign military sales to keeping our industrial base going and for and military aid to keeping our industrial base going? So it's enormously important, uh, not just from keeping the industrial base going, but also from war fighting, because then you have adequate supply parts. Uh, you have common weapons, common training, interoperability, interoperability yeah. all of that works. And, and in many respects, the narrative needs to change a little bit away from kind of buy American to buy allies, right? Uh, where we're supporting and selling the same weapon systems to each other, and then you get economies of scale. Uh, what, what happens is if you're uniquely building each weapon system, it's going to be very, very expensive. And then you buy fewer and fewer of them. But if you can, you can sell at scale, for example, the Abrams tank, right, then you can drive the cost down and people can afford more of them. And so, so that's really, we, we talk about in several of the articles we've written, right, looking at franchises from the Blackhawks, right, uh, aircraft uh, to the Abrams that you can sell globally to all all the countries. The other thing that does is it keeps the repair parts going, because if the U.S. Army isn't using its vehicles, the parts lines, the second, third tier su suppliers dry up. And so that becomes very important also. I had lunch with a Ukrainian uh, legislator recently, and one of the things she told me that is not, I don't think, has been publicly reported is that we sent over a bunch of strikers to Ukraine, and when they got there, half of them wouldn't start. 
and we had to send them back to the United States to have them fixed at the Lima right. plant. Like, what is going on with our maintenance? I mean, literally half the vehicles didn't work. Yeah, so that be used in combat. That goes back to the fact that that the military right has been operating on on continuing resolutions. The fu- inflation has been up, and so it hasn't been able to afford uh, the readiness for the prepositioned stock. So that's always the first thing cut, right? So you cut the maintaining of your war reserves and hope that nobody notices, right? Well, so the world erupted and noticed that when we sent it over there, we hadn't been maintaining the stuff for several years because it's uh, it's expensive. Uh, someone once said, uh, you know, it's expensive to prepare for war, but the only thing more expensive than preparing for war is fighting a war. And the only thing more expensive than fighting a war is losing a war. So preparing for war is expensive, but by preparing for it, you deter those from, you know, who want to attack you. I love my colleagues at AEI. Uh, you spent a career in the military. Why is it that we are fighting this fight? And that Lloyd Austin has not said this, has not made this speech, has not hit up J.D. Vance's office. I still remember back when Mark and I, we're really like turning into, you know, those two, those two old men on the Muppets. Um, <laughs> I remember back in my time on Capitol Hill, my God. But when, when we did stuff on Capitol Hill that the executive branch didn't like, they went to war against us. They would call up other members. They would, uh, they would go to constituencies. There was guerrilla warfare that happened. What has happened to the Pentagon? Yeah, so I think it's, again, it's 30 years of, of learned helplessness, uh, right? God. Where And it goes back to the peace dividend and then, right, uh, a very ill-fated turn towards next generation transformation and then sequestration. And so what you wound up with, if you go back to the Reagan era military, it was for two wars, right? Well, now we're down to one short war. And so the Pentagon assumes away the problem in order to maintain political alignment with with multiple administrations over many years. And even in the right, you hear some people go, China, 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 right? So essentially what we've done when we say that is we put a sign out to the rest of the world, the Russians, the, the Iranians, which is like, hey, you know, come on in, right? The rest of the world is open for, for you all to take because we're just going to focus <laughs> right. on one part of the world. So it makes makes no sense. Right. We can't chew gum and walk. So I want to ask you actually a, a practical follow-up question. Surprise Hamas attack on Israel, massive retaliation. Now we've got two carrier battle groups in the Baden of the Red Sea. One of those is now under attack by Yemeni forces, obviously backed and armed by Iran. If we've got those guys in that AOR, in that in CENTCOM's AOR, their area of responsibility, um, what does that mean about China, 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 and Russia, Russia, Russia? Yeah, it means that we're stretched thin and everybody we knows can't, it. I mean, thin, we, thin, we, thin. we wouldn't even last, a, we couldn't even last a, a week with the Chinese with half of, half of our, our available fleet that isn't either being fixed in the shop or steaming somewhere else, sitting and fighting with a bunch of literally ragtag terrorists in Yemen. And so ultimately, right, the, the guarantor of security for the United States are, you know, the two oceans and our nuclear weapons, right? And so, uh, right. We, you know, so, so the one thing we don't want are to have discussions of that, right? But, oh but the challenge is as risk dials up around the world, Right. Then you've got a message to your opponents. Hey, wait a minute. We've still got, you know, you, you kind of shake the saber a little bit and you make sure that they understand that you still have ways to influence them. It is a dangerous game and we live in dangerous times right now. And it and, forces you onto the escalation ladder, basically. Yes. Yeah, right. Amazing. Well, that's not good. Talk to us a little bit about um, how the specific, in some specific ways, our aid to Ukraine and what it's doing for our weapons production prepares us better for China. So, I mean, for example, two two systems that I list in my article, in addition to the Stingers, are this JDAM-ER, which is a new, a new uh, weapon that basically turns dumb bombs into smart bombs and extends their range. There's also the uh, ground-launched small-diameter bomb. Um, these are weapons that could be helpful to Israel, that could be helpful to the U.S. in a conflict with China. 
how is this aid helping us prepare for other conflicts? So part part of this aid is helping us to make those weapons better. We're learning, right? So essentially Ukraine becomes a, a, a testing ground for all of these weapons that you can improve upon, right? So they're going up against Russian EW, Russian, right? EW is what? Electronic warfare. Okay. Uh, and, and other methods. So what, what we're finding out now is how do you inject artificial intelligence? How do, you, how do you make those weapons even smarter? And so spending the money and getting those weapons to war, figuring out which ones work, which ones don't, how do you improve them? How do you link them in with, with satellites and with uh, intelligence and surveillance and targeting and what works and what doesn't work? where essentially the Ukrainians are testing out all of our modern weapon fleet for so it's us. Like a, it's like giving us the benefits of a war game except with real battlefield conditions. A real enemy. The, yeah. Generally with war games, when you do them, you, you well, or you let, even worse than that, you, you don't let the opposing side bring in inconvenient facts and truths about your war game, so mm -hmm. you kind of stack the war game against you. Uh, this doesn't allow that to happen. So we are, all those weapons are getting tried out, and then new weapons are coming in. So mm -hmm. some of the money is going for the development of new weapons from startups, and we'll see which ones play out beneficially. So clearly the conflict in Ukraine, there's a lot of benefits of what we're learning on the battlefield. There's a lot of the weapons are translatable. A lot of them are not because it's going to be a very different conflict. Taiwan is an, let's say if there's a war over Taiwan, Taiwan's an island. You know, it doesn't have a long porous border like Ukraine does. You can't bring the weapons in over, over the Polish border the way you can. Um, there's a lot of things that are going to be different. There's a lot of different weapon systems that are going to be needed. What is our defense production capacity for the weapons we need for Taiwan, specifically that are not being built up because of the Ukraine? Are we? Is our, our production lines getting revved up for those as well? No, they're not, right? Because there's no supplemental for that. And there's no, you know, nobody's challenging the assumptions for those. And so I think the Congress saw this about two years ago, right? Because many people believe Taiwan will be a big naval battle and the Navy's mm -hmm. got to get ready. And we wrote an article here a couple, couple about two years ago that said, hey, the Navy's broke and somebody needs to fix it. And Congress passed a, a commission to look at this, which was, hey, wait a minute, like, like this is not good. We don't have the ships we need. The ships don't have the munitions they need. The Navy bought a ship, but not the missile. And then other ships were cracking and said, we need to get on this. And a large part of that commission was supposed to address the industrial base. But only half the commissioners have been appointed. The other half what? have not been appointed. Uh, Wait, by... who, I said the Republicans or the Democrats have been appointed? The Republicans have been appointed. The Democrats have not. And so the commission can't meet without a quorum. And so the commission on the, you know, the future of the Navy that, that is supposed to come back you know, at, right after the new president comes in with a plan to fix the Navy, they haven't been able to meet. What an outrage. And it's just, I mean, and it's a damn commission. Everybody in Washington loves a commission. Yep. I can't believe they're not even bothering to appoint a few of their best friends and hairdressers and brothers-in-law. Unless you assume the commission, regardless of who you appoint, is going to come back and, you tell know, you, the emperor you has no clothes. You don't and, you, you, and if you exactly. don't want to spend more money on it, right, then, uh, right, that, right, I mean, everybody who looks at the problem, uh, especially the, the, the China problem and the Navy, says we've, we've got a big problem here with shipbuilding and with, with the naval munitions and aircraft. And it's going to take money to solve the problem. Well, this also suggests that the Republicans who say, you know, we got to break this all up and do different, you know, Taiwan is its own problem. Israel is its own problem. Ukraine is its own problem. We don't need to do a supplemental for all of them are wrong. We actually do need a supplemental for Taiwan. <laughs> yes. And it's, uh, it, you know, again, it's like we live in a globally connected world. We may want to take our enemies and say, okay, you wait there, you go first, you go second, right? Yeah. But Good they luck. know and they're gonna they're gonna talk to each other, right? And they're gonna coordinate, synchronize, and they're gonna find our weak point and they will exploit it. So to the extent that we leave Africa uncovered, right, then you, you go in and you send in your mercenaries and you start overthrowing governments. Right. To the extent you say, right, we're done with the Middle East. There is no more. Right. War is over in the Middle East. Well, we might have said war was over. And we right. But war continued without us. Uh, and, and, you know, what I like to say is, you know, the Vegas rules don't apply. Right. What goes on in the Middle East doesn't stay in the Middle East. What goes on in Europe doesn't stay there. So so the, the Chinese are smart. Right. They will make sure that we have multiple problems to have to solve when dealing with them. They will not, you know, let us just focus on them.
right. And that's one of the utilities of this sort of access of evil 2.0 is that the Chinese, just as they have sided with Hamas and they've sided with Russia and Ukraine and the Russians have sided with Hamas against Israel and with Iran, you know, that's they're, they're there for each other, uh, which is, you know, should be causing us to worry. So I had a question I wanted to ask you a couple minutes ago when you were talking about innovation. You were both talking about the test ground that Ukraine is. So you know, one of the things that we saw in the early 1990s when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait was we hadn't fought a war in decades, and unless you want to talk about Grenada, and, um, and the world saw what we had been working on in those years, you know, Star Wars and that, and we had Patriot missiles, and we had precision guided munitions, and no one else had those things. And they were, it was shock and awe. It really was. I mean, I still remember how impressed people were. Um, now, of course, Hezbollah, um, and even uh, probably pretty soon Hamas has precision guided munitions, the things that we shocked and, and awed the world with. Um, what are the kinds of things that we are working on? Please tell me we're working on something that <laughs> that could be game changers for us. Yeah, I think one of the problems we have, uh, you know, there's something called the valley of death where we have we, we have the most entrepreneurial startup system in the entire world. We create all this technology. But the Defense Department has a large problem getting it inside of its own system. Uh, once again, because, right, we're on this five-year program of record, once you start building something, you don't want to stop building it. And so, so we, have a, we have a lot of challenges bringing a lot of new technology in. It wasn't really until after the disaster of Vietnam and, and Desert One, right? If we look back in history, uh, we've always been unprepared for the next war. So back in Kayserine Pass, we had gasoline tanks, right, which which burnt to death our soldiers. Then we had Task Force Smith. Then in 1979, Desert One, right, we, we, we wound up killing service members without even making contact with the enemy. Uh, in some ways... Helped defeat Carter. Or it's Desert Storm was a success, but it, it in some ways it could have been, it, it, it was a failure because we bought our own advertising slogan. And we've been resting on this top-down uh, model of technology. And if you think about technology when it first came, it really was top-down. But if you look at it in the 2000s and 2010s, it turned the world upside down, right? Content creators, technology, mobile computing, it became bottom-up. But the U.S. military stayed focused on this top-down model from Desert Storm and hasn't let go of that. But Hamas, the Iraqi insurgents, the Afghan the Taliban, right, they have actually organized and embraced this bottom-up technological revolution that we invented that our military really doesn't allow in because it's afraid to let things connect to the network. Right. It's afraid to to bring it in because we worry about what's going to happen. It might displace a program we already have. Right. So if you look at Starlink. Right. So why is it that the U.S. military was still building billion dollar satellites when it became obvious that low Earth orbit was going to come into being? And now we don't have actually much capability and we depend upon the private sector. Right. Which, Not just the private sector, but Elon Musk. Right. So the big challenge is like, so we became victims of our own Desert Storm success. The world saw what we did. They saw how the technology flipped upside down, and we have yet to make that transition in the, in the U.S. military. Can you talk to us in a way that an average American can understand why? He means himself. Why? Yeah, I'm one of them. <laughs> um, why it is that sequestration, continuing resolutions, all this uncertainty in funding from Congress, how it affects military production and impedes military production. So I'd like to say that during a uh, continuing resolution, which we're on now for anywhere three to six months, uh, the Pentagon gets its money in dribs and drabs. And so instead of shopping in bulk at Costco and buying the big bulk of toilet paper very cheap, it essentially buys at the local gas station, right? And if you've ever bought something there, right, they know you need it and they charge a lot of money. So we wind up paying a premium in order to buy less uh, because of these continuing resolutions. Uh, the other anomaly we have in our system is that if the Pentagon wants to buy more than it did last year, like let's say you had a war in Ukraine and you need to buy more artillery shells, you're prohibited by statute from buying more until you get the new appropriation. 
So, so you wind up locked into procurement quantities and whatever you were doing last year, you can continue doing it at the same rate, but in smaller packets. Uh, so you can't actually move forward and adjust to the world that you're in because right now, today as we sit here, the Defense Department is locked into a funding model that was created 18 months ago. You, you've described this as sort of a Soviet top-down system with all these uncertainties from funding from Congress and the Pentagon not being able to buy in bulk at Costco and all the rest of that. Do the Chinese have these problems? So I think that the Chinese don't have a commercial and a right military industrial complex, right? They just have one. Mm-hmm. And so they're able to to command all of those to, you know, production is all the same. And so so I think uh, because, you know, we're a capitalist system with a with a vibrant pri- private sector, we've created a defense economic model that actually works against that. The Chinese, their economic model ties in and they're able to direct the entire resources of their economy towards their ends. And so so I think they don't necessarily have our problem, although in fairness to us, right, we, their model hasn't really been tested, right? So yeah. So we don't actually know when the bullets fly right? Will their model collapse as quickly as the Soviet model did in the 1980s? We were blissfully unaware of the rot inside the Soviet system. Uh, many people think that, you know, when the Chinese, that their their time has passed, uh, and then when they started arresting their the big technologists, they've actually destroyed their system, right? Because they couldn't allow that capitalist system in and, and and that over time, this is going to turn them into the Soviet Union. It's hard to know, but it is a enormous wager and bet, right? We're literally, play, you know, playing. You bet your life with this decision here. And ours, so, uh, because of, because of capitalism, ours is more innovative, right? We, we have a more innovative system, but they make up for that by just stealing our technology. They do. So they have <laughs> they have killed off their innovation, right, by by arresting all of their tech billionaires and really squelching that and making the their economy subservient to the to the party. But you're right, right? So they've become really good at stealing, right? And so so that's the challenge we have. So where they're outsourcing their R and D to us. But I mean, you're right. We have built them up to be very big and we've built ourselves up to be very small even in this discussion. Uh, uh Xi Jinping just purged uh first purged his Minister of Defense and the top echelons of the of their Ministry of Defense purged their entire space force and purged the entire top levels of their uh, ballistic missile force. So, I mean, those things are, you know, communism is not a good way to run a military and uh, ideological rigidity isn't. So, I mean, we can hope that those things are a problem, but it really is just hope. It is. and But the challenge, of course, is their problem set is easier than ours, like much easier, because like they're trying to get Taiwan, which is like a hop, skip, and a jump from them. And for us, it's a very long away game, right? So so the challenges for us is like this is it's not a it's not a fair match. It's, they have a much easier problem set. And so we have to take that into consideration of, well, we call ourselves even and, and that's the handicap to the, you know, the, the, the problem set. And uh, again, they can create multiple problems around the world for us. And also they're not really communist. They're crony capitalist. In well, a sense. they're becoming more and more communist. They are becoming well, certainly in the political repression side of things. Well, even but on it, the but you know, there, side. There, there's there's a whole system of PLA businesses out there where people are getting very rich uh, using sort of authoritarian uh, capitalism. Uh, how does that impact their defense side? Yeah, so I think they saw like so. Th- this is just plain old corruption, right? Is what we're talking about. And I think uh, they were shocked at the performance of the Russian army as much as the Russians were at the start of the Ukraine war, and they saw the extent of the rot inside the the current Russian army. I mean, we had led ourselves to believe, and I right that the Russians had downsized and were trying to professionalize their military. So what what they had wasn't a lot, but we we all thought it was going to be good. Nobody realized the extent of the corruption inside of that. And so if you're you know, in charge of the People's Liberation Army, all of a sudden, like you're like, whoa, wait a minute. What about our formations? Right. Do we know what's going on inside of them? Because obviously the, the senior Russian leaders didn't know what was going on inside of their formations. So exit question for me. I, I wrote a piece, I think, a couple of years ago, and I wasn't clever enough at that moment to call it that. But, you know, we just talked about just in time and we've gotten in the habit of referring to our uh, our policy toward Ukraine as a day late and a dollar short. The piece I wrote then said that America has gotten in the habit 
of drifting until something terrible happens. You know, it's sort of the Pearl Harbor 9-11 model. You know, we wait and then something terrible happens and it galvanizes us into action. And like Superman, we shed our suit and soar off into the, the distance. What's it going to take for us to fix these problems that you've talked about? We've gotten a little bit of a reprieve because of Ukraine, but not a systemic reprieve, just a sort of a tactical reprieve. What's it going to take? Yeah, I think it's going to take the American people with, with its political leaders to, to make a decision. Unfortunately, like we were talking about before, uh, it's taken disaster on the battlefield when we send 18-year-old young men and women now to, to die. They bear the brunt of all of these bad decisions that we have. Uh, I think now it, it's interesting as I watch uh, the, the political establishment make decisions in wartime, and it's almost as if we're afraid of winning, right? So we do just enough to not lose, right? And, and right, Secretary Gates talked about that in Afghanistan. He, he said, hey, we'll do just enough not to lose. Early in the Ukraine war, it was, well, I don't want to give them these types of weapons because they might actually win, right? We don't God want forbid. them to win. Uh, you know, there are some people talking now that, you know, holding the Israelis back, right? Oh, yeah. uh, and so the question is, right, uh, the, the longer you put off winning, the longer war goes and the cost actually goes up higher. And it's that, that calculus of where the cost is. People seem to believe that if I can keep it longer at a minimum level, it's actually less than, than it, and, it, and it's not, right? So you, you've got to win, and, it, and war is a force of wills. We're withholding so many weapons from the Ukrainians, as they point out, that they need to win. I mean, you know, we're talking, they refer to this counteroffensive as combined arms warfare. It's not, because combined arms warfare involves long range missiles, air power to gain air superiority. And we're not, I mean, when's the last time we had a war where a country was trying to take back territory without air power? Right, not just air power. We've given them a couple of tanks, but tanks by themselves don't do it. And a couple of tanks don't do it because the front is long, right? Uh, and, and a few tanks, right, don't do it. So I've, I've put out there that we ought to give them a whole maneuver division, right, that, that we had ready to fight the Soviets. Uh, we would never that put... exists in Germany in case of a war with Russia. Right. And so... <laughs> the war with Russia Mark, you're is so here. confused. <laughs> so, so we should turn that all over and let them maneuver. Right. So if you're restricted and we've told them, well, you can't go north or south, you, you've got this little terrain. Right. And, and what you, we, we've created for them is World War One all over again. And, and also, we're not giving them attackums. Uh, we're, now we've started to give started. them medium, but only the medium range right. one. And I think I was told at the Reagan Defense Forum by an informed source that we've only given them about 16 of them when we have thousands. Mm -hmm. But we say we can't give them to them because we don't have enough. But we're not producing attackums anymore because we're transitioning to a different weapon. And so we don't have production lines for the attackums to replace the attackums, but we don't have the new weapon yet. And so this is this. It's like a Seinfeld episode. It's like a Seinfeld episode, but this is, we this can't is literally square. stopping the Ukrainians from taking territory, isn't it? Well, I think it's condemning Ukrainians to unnecessarily die, right? I mean, it's it, it, right. So, again, it goes back to, right, we, we are focused for some reason on we've got what was once called by Secretary Gates next war-itis, right? We're so focused on the next war, right, we don't want to fight this war. And the best way to prevent the next war is to actually fight this war. And so we should be all in. And by not going all in, right, at the end of this, people will go and they'll do the math. They go, well, look, we didn't shoot a lot of ATACM, so I don't need to expand the production base. And the reason we didn't shoot a lot of them was because we couldn't produce them and we were worried about it. And so you wind up in this circle. It's like watching that little blue circle on your computer go round and round and round, right? That's what we do. We just go in circles and assume away the problem. The circle of death, and it literally, in the case of Ukraine. Circle, circle of death, death, circle of incompetence, circle of lack of leadership. It's all a big freaking disaster. <laughs> well, we have the opposite of all those things right here with John, and we're so grateful. We're, first of all, we're so grateful that you're at AEI. And um, so and grateful so that you, you joined us. For you this explained podcast. so lucidly. I wish I wouldn't want to go to the Pentagon if I were. If I were you, but God, do I wish we had some real leadership. Well, thank you. And it's a privilege for me to be part of the team. And uh, we have so many great people here. And so uh, a lot of, lot of great work being done. Thank you. Thank you. So what do you think? Great interview. He's We're only, so lucky to have him. I wish he wasn't at AEI. <laughs> I wish he was at the Pentagon still fixing this problem. But uh, I'm glad that he's here if he can't be there. Uh, but look, the other thing that we only sort of touched on 
um, when we were talking about the Lima plant is how foreign military sales are really important to uh, this whole process and keeping our industrial base going. This is another way that the Ukraine war has uh, has reinvigorated our industrial base. What we are doing in addition to the U.S. providing aid and weapons to, to the Ukrainians is we are encouraging our European allies to provide weapons and aid to the Ukrainians. And what they are doing is they are offloading and giving them their old old American and old Soviet weaponry and giving that to the Ukrainians. And they're coming back and they're buying brand new US-made weapons. One of the weapon systems that has completely sales have been boosted because of the Ukraine war is the F-35 fighter jet. Which um, is uh, under under deadline and, and over budget. Yep, but like Finland, just finalized a $9.4 billion deal to purchase 64 F-35s, which is going to allow it to provide its old F-A-18 Hornet fighters to Ukraine. Norway has donated old F-16 fighters to Ukraine and is purchasing 52 F-35s. And they're also spending $293 million to arm them with 580 Stormbreaker small diameter bombs built in Tucson, Arizona. Denmark and the Netherlands are doing the same thing. So the, the effort is not only through our military aid, but through our collaboration with our allies is creating jobs and reinvigorating our industrial base. And the other thing that's doing is it's strengthening NATO. Exactly what because, I was about to say. Because now our militaries are more interoperable. We've had all these East European allies who came in who were using, who still had their old MiGs and their old Soviet fighters, and they were modernizing their military. It's accelerated the modernization, not just of our military, because we're giving Ukraine our old stuff and building new stuff, but the Europeans are doing the same thing, and they're buying it from us. And they're investing in defense, which has yes. been our big hobby horse. Listen, there are there are, are no downsides. Somebody else is fighting a war against our worst enemy. We are revitalizing our defense industrial base. We are we are giving jobs to American workers. We are uh, underwriting and renewing NATO for the future. We are doing things that are helping us fight better, fight smarter. We're testing them in the field. We are helping in every way, not just deter the next war so our men and women in uniform don't have to die, but we are absolutely letting our enemies know that we are still better than them, that we can fight. The only thing that is a freaking mystery to me is the Tommy Tubervilles and the J.D. Vances and the Jim Jordans. And there are a couple Democrats in there as well, but a lot of Republicans who have betrayed the memory of Ronald Reagan and who have betrayed their country and our national security by failing to stand up. I am so proud of you for calling out each and every single one of them. Shame on them. And I'm so proud of Clara for doing a better job than the Pentagon in collecting <laughs> this information. General Clara. And and I shouldn't be calling out her name because now she's going to get all sorts of job offers and she's going to leave us. Don't and we're worry, not allow... she'll never so leave she, Clara, us. Clara is never, just I want everybody to know, Clara is not leaving AEI. She's very happy here producing our podcast and doing this That's research. Until right. uh, she's at least off. in her 50s or 60s. <laughs> That's Thank you, right. Clara, for your amazing work, and to Noah and to everybody at AEI who helped produce this report. You beat the entire Pentagon uh, sustainment bureaucracy. Uh, so kudos to you. And, uh, and kudos to you, Mark, and, and for, for doing it, and to your guys at the Washington Post for running it. And I'm everybody here happy. at AEI. We have a yep. great team here. Everybody gave us ideas, looked at the article and, and, and the research. We've got, we've got kudos to AEI. And with that bit of self-applause and back-patting, uh, thank you very much to our listeners all 1 million downloads of you. Thank you very much for being there. Keep downloading. Download twice if necessary. Chicago rules. And take care. <laughs> See you next week. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.